my story is of a little brown girl who grew up in an all-white family and lived in all-white communities and went to all-white schools. And from my earliest memories, about three years old, I was very acutely aware of being very different. Welcome to Diversity Dish, where we're dishing on everything diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice related. My name is Cedrola Maruska, and we're bridging the gap between what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. Those individual experiences that are often ignored or simply dismissed. Sometimes I'm dining alone. Sometimes I'm dining with friends. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Dr. Naima Olatunji is the author of Raised as a Lie, her memoir, which explores the story of growing up amidst deceit, denial, and racism, and bravely takes the reader from family secrets to freedom. Welcome back to Diversity Dish. I'm so glad you decided to come back. Today, my guest is Dr. Naima Olatunji. Hello, Naima. How are you? I'm so amazing. I'm so amazing. I'm really, really honored to have this conversation with you. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited to have you here too. Thank you so much for agreeing to be here. So we're just going to jump right in. And all my first question is always, what is it that you are most passionate about right now? That is an excellent question and so timely for me. The thing that gets me the most excited about my life right now is that I am a newly published author. Yay! And I know! <laughs> Such a big deal. It Such is. a big deal to me. I'm really, really excited to be in this space of, I did it! I did it! Yes, you did. Oh my goodness. I think of a lot of people, you know, myself included, I can put myself in that in that basket as well. People who would like to write a book and somehow it gets pushed to the side, pushed to the side, because I think it's a little bit of a scary journey to, to decide to write a book and actually sit and focus on doing that. Yeah. So your Agreed. book- it is a, it's a pretty daunting, um, statistic, actually, I didn't know this, but I learned this from the publisher, literally 2% of all people who say they're actually going to write a book, publish a book that they actually complete the book and then, you know, go on to publish it 2%. And that's of the people who say that they're going to write a book, like how are, you know, like how many other people would like to, and they don't actually, you know, go on a mission. So the idea that, you know, this is so common, despite the kajillion books that are in our universe, exactly. truly is, it's pretty spectacular to be in, in the place um, of actually completing the project, because it is daunting. I, I would have told you all the way up until 14 months ago that even though it was a fantasy, you know, on a secret journal, 
Mm -hmm. I would have never told you that I was going to become a published author because mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I had the skill set to actually complete such a huge task. Yeah. Wow. Your book, the book that we're talking about right now, that you just released, and I'm definitely putting as links in the show notes, is Raised as a Lie. And it is a memoir. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book, because that is such an interesting title. I love it so much. <laughs> I That title actually came to me. You know, the thing that I would have said about myself is that I'm not a creative and that I'm not a writer. Both of those things clearly are not true. But I did believe those things about myself. Um, what I now know to be true is that I have the ability to tune in and listen to my inner voice. And I call that intuitive voice whispers from God. And mm -hmm. there was a moment in when I decided that I was going to, to write the book, when I knew that I needed to write the book, that the title came to me. And it's provocative on purpose. It mm -hmm. is designed to be a little inflammatory because <laughs> I want somebody to go raised as a lie what does that even mean? Yes. And, um, and it's, it's a lot about how I felt at, in the moment, meaning I wanted to provoke um, people to pick up my book. I wanted to provoke them to open it up. The very first page in the book is extremely provocative. It is, mm. it's the type of writing that grabs your attention because it's pretty heart-wrenching mm. um, and it was done so by design while I still <laughs> am working on calling myself a writer what I can say for sure is that I I'm really good at poking the bear and <laughs> I I want to I want my story to connect with other people's story. Mm -hmm. I began the journey to heal my own childhood traumas that were I was living out as an adult. Mm -hmm. But I finished the project because there's at some point in any project where you're like, you know what, I'm done, tap out, right? Yeah. And in those moments where I wanted to quit, because let me tell you, there were plenty. <laughs> in those moments that I wanted to quit, those were the moments that I knew that I would finish it for my sisters who were still struggling with their own worthiness. And because I know that there are so many women and men, but there's so many women who don't know their own value the way that I didn't know mine. That was my inspiration for completing the book and being able to leave a type of legacy for other people who are looking to sort of weave their way through their own journey of healing. Yeah. Well, tell us the journey that brought you to writing this book. So 
were you always going to be an author? Did you always have this idea that you wanted to be an author? Or was it something different? Hey, thanks for listening. My name is Sidrola Maruska, and I help entrepreneurs and small businesses go from mediocre to magnificent by transforming their cultures to be more equitable and inclusive. To find out how we can work together, go to diversitydish.com, where you'll find my consulting, coaching, and speaker information. Diversitydish.com. I look forward to working with you. That's such a great question. I I had a secret, secret um, goal of becoming a New York Times bestselling author. Ooh. And I, I never told anybody that, like never out loud. I did not say that because remember, I wasn't an author. Like I wasn't a writer. I didn't even journal. <laughs> like I don't have journals that I'm like, oh, when I was 13. No, I, I don't have those. And, but it was like, it was like, how on earth are you going to become a New York Times bestselling author? You don't even write. And so I never told anybody about it. And I just sort of, you know, tucked it away. And then when I was 49, I had a complete emotional crisis. Um, and the book, the book, my story emerged from that, that crisis. And again, I really needed to heal myself. And so my therapy became my book, but I did not know that my story was book worthy. Mm -hmm. And this is what I mean. I think for each one of us, we normalize our lives and the events in our lives that mm -hmm. we experience, not because we want to minimize them, but they are just our normal. Mm -hmm. And because they are our normal, we just simply normalize them. Mm -hmm. We, I think, oftentimes connect with some very heart-wrenching stories from other people. And we're just like, oh my God, how did you endure it? And the person will be like, I don't know. I just did. I just put one foot in front of the other. Like that was my normal. Was I supposed to do something different? Right. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't know that they were supposed to do or feel any different, that they just simply lived their daily lives as if that was what they were assigned to do. Yeah. And so my story is of a little brown girl who grew up in an all-white family and lived in all-white communities and went to all-white schools. And from my earliest memories, about three years old, I was very acutely aware of being very different. I had brown skin and curly hair. My younger brother, who um, is four years younger than me, so when he was born, he was almost translucent. He was <laughs> so pale and he had bright, you know, blue eyes. Um, the man that's on my birth certificate is, you know, was blonde haired, blue eyed. My older sister, who is from a different dad, is also blonde haired, blue eyed. And so I knew I didn't look like anybody in my family. And my sister, who is seven years older than me, you know, had her own emotional issues and I was her target. And so mm -hmm. she tormented me um, when I was younger and always calling my skin dirty and stained and 
I internalized so much of that. Mm -hmm. And while I knew that my family loved me, I question my sister, but I knew that my family <laughs> loved me. And yet I always felt like an outsider, always felt invisible. And I never had, you know, this um, good relationship with my hair. It was always sort of, oh, that mop or oh, that rat's nest. Like, you know, while it's, it's one thing to be loved, it's another thing to be tolerated. Mm. And my hair was certainly something that was barely tolerated, mm -hmm. right? Um, mm -hmm. And it was because my mother didn't know how to do my hair. My aunts didn't know how to do my hair. All of mm -hmm. their children had straight hair. And so mm -hmm. there was just never this sort of compassion around it. And so when I finally graduated to you know, being an adult, I was 49. I had gone back to school in my 30s. I had, uh, you know, was raising three children. And here at 49, you know, two of them were up and out of the house and successful. And I had my youngest one who was a senior in high school. And I, I had the successful practice. I'm a chiropractor. And I had survived going back to graduate school, like all these things that I would have said, these are the accoutrements to my success. Mm -hmm. And then I was newly in love with this man that I thought was going to be my forever guy because mm -hmm. I had got divorced after 22 years of marriage. And I just never saw that that, that marriage was going to end in divorce. And, and it took me six years to heal from that ending of my marriage and and but here I am at 49 and I'm mm -hmm. good mm -hmm. I'm good and then Mr. Forever walks out and he abandons mm -hmm. me after me begging him not to leave and to know me is to know that I don't beg for anything I got mm -hmm. too much ego too much pride mm -hmm. and I was raised by fierce women who would have told you that you never, ever beg for anything. You go out and you work your ass off, but you don't mm -hmm. beg for anything. And yet I begged that man to stay and he left and I was shattered. And so the book emerges because I have some very deep hurts that I need to figure out how to heal. Mm -hmm. And I did the one thing that I knew in that moment, and that was to call a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I could not be more grateful for the therapist that I had because him seeing and spending hours with me every single week and the support of my, um, my friends is truly what got me through a, just a, an entire emotional crisis. And in that healing I could then formulate the whole story of the book because initially, while I didn't think that my story was unique only because I never told anybody about it, right? it was like, well, so what? I had this story, right? Like, so what? I was an outsider. There are lots of people who feel like they're an outsider. Yeah. It turns out that as an adult, 
I was making decisions based off of meanings that I had attached to myself and others from when I was a very little girl. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be a very dangerous thing that we do as adults. Mm -hmm. And so in writing the story, I was able to analyze them and, and truly look at my history and how I got to the place where I'm at. And it was just such a cathartic process. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity. Yeah. So it was, it was the process of going to therapy that helped you to then get to the place where you wrote this book and on that path really to being that number one New York Times bestseller, or at least Amen. on the list, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I will the, claim it. It's so interesting that it is the healing process that is helping you to that would help you to reach this goal that you never really spoke about because somewhere in your mind, you just never believed it to be something that you were worthy of or that you could actually attain, right? Girl, yes, yes. That is wow. so well articulated because that is, that is not only what happened, but it has become a founding principle in my life that I live from now. And it is simply this, we are all responsible for our own well-being. We are all responsible for our own healing, our own mental health, our own worthiness. That's an inside job. You cannot inside get that job. from external sources. Mm -hmm. Your worthiness is an inside job. And it is nobody else's responsibility to heal you because yeah. nobody else can. And yeah. yet we walk around sometimes so asleep at the wheel, projecting and blaming on other people mm -hmm. that for which is your job, like mm -hmm. look in the mirror. And I cannot begin to tell you how often I have those mirror conversations, like get it together, Naima. This is nobody else's job, not even the therapist, right? Like it's his job to frame things, to give me tools, to help illuminate yep. some, some areas that I had darkened. Yeah. It isn't his job to heal me. Like I, I have this and you can't see it from this angle, but to the, um, to the right of me, I have a ginormous mirror that um, I only have to, but turn my head just slightly and I'm looking back at me and yeah. that's the re-reminder for myself. Mm -hmm. It is your job, Naima, to show up healed. It is mm -hmm. your job to take responsibility for your own emotions and set the example. Cause I'm a mom to three. Yeah. Like, how am I going to be walking around aware? Cause sometimes we're not aware of our own trauma, but yes. once we become aware of it, like mm -hmm. that's a responsibility that you then, in my opinion, in my belief, you have to then take action because yeah. when you don't, you hurt other people, right? right. Like what's the saying? Hurt people, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people. That's right. 
That's and exactly I'm going right. to call bullshit on that. Like, that's ridiculous. If you know that you're injured, you know that you've got trauma. If you're walking in with, you know, a six piece um, set of luggage from all the baggage that you done brought from all of your, you know, hurts and, you know, broken relationships and situations at jobs and family stuff, like, come on. Yeah. Look in the mirror, do some internal work. And then how dope is that? Cause you get to be freed. You were freed from your yeah. own issues and then you get to love better and serve better and you show up from a place of abundance. And I think in doing that, that's how we make a better world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so good. I'm reading The Untethered Soul right now. Yes! It's the second time I'm going through it. But just this morning as I was reading, I, I'm at the part where he says, you have to just choose to be happy. No matter what it is that happens in your life, you have to choose to be happy and not base it on anything particular that happens or doesn't happen for you so that you can fully experience and fully enjoy this life that you're living, right? So you cannot base it on, well, I cho chose to be happy, but then my husband left me, so I couldn't right. be happy anymore. No, right. you have to right. just simply choose that your husband leaving is not the thing that's going to take your your happiness and take your joy. And so yeah. I, I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh yeah, that's kind of, you know, the, it, it, it resonates in the same way. Yeah. You have to choose. And yeah, we, you know, we are responsible for whatever it is that we find out about ourselves. So which is really uh, also an interesting thing that I say all the time, especially as an equity inclusion uh, co consultant. I say the reason that a lot of people want to turn away and don't want to hear the information is because they now become responsible for what they do with that information. If they Amen. don't do anything, then they've, then it gives them more angst, more guilt. So it's better. Maybe it's better if I don't just, if I don't hear it, then I don't have to be responsible for something that I don't know. Yep. And sadly, if the information is there for you, if the information is supplied to you, you are still responsible for it, yes. whether or not you choose to hear it or you choose to to act in accordance to to it, right? A hundred percent. And doesn't that come from top down, right? In our country, right? Um, our president, whoever is sitting in the seat, has plausible deniability, right? As a clause, like do not tell me because if I know, <laughs> then I have to take action, right? Yeah. Well, we all know that. If you know something, you are then tasked with the responsibility. It is not knowledge yes. that is power. It is applied knowledge, right? Like you can't simply say, oh, I know it and whatever. No. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I used to be the executive assistant to a general counsel for a company. And uh, I had access to his calendar, but not emails. And I soon realized that the reason I didn't have access to emails was because of that plausible deniability. So that if for any reason, anything happened and then I were questioned, I could say, 
I didn't have access to his emails. I have no idea what you're talking about and not lie about it, right? I just didn't have that access, right? Yes. But if you have the access. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You could not incriminate him based off of your knowledge. And right. I think that ultimately that we do the same, you know, for ourselves, right? Um, it's, it's, it reminds me, and I love that you're reading that book. I think it's so dope. Um, yeah. The Untethered Soul. The, one of the things that it sort of inspired my, sparked my memory was something that Reverend Michael Beckwith says a lot that has just resonated with in my soul. And that mm -hmm. is pain pushes you until your vision pulls you. Pain pushes you until your vision pulls you. There is only but so long that you're going to endure the pain right. before your vision then becomes much bigger and that you can come, you make decisions from that vision. Mm -hmm. And in the choosing of joy, in the choosing to be happy, in the choosing to be grateful, that's your vision. That is not the reality that is not the the reality that's a wrong word that is not our a, a external environment right. necessarily it is a mindset that you are choosing it is a choice you are making from the vision of what you envision and what you visualize that your life has the potential to be and isn't that a walk in faith because mm -hmm. we can't we can't be guaranteed that any one external thing is going to happen and or not happen mm -hmm. But if we come from a place that we are excited about what we imagine that our life could be, if we are truly the co-creators mm -hmm. of our own story and we get to paint our canvas with the colors that we choose and to make it as you know detailed and vast and, and beautiful, or we can be, you know, unicolor and, and have tunnel vision <laughs> yes. and adopt all of the human race consciousness and the negativity that is all around us. We could come from that, but that's just pain. That's just pain pushing you. And, yeah. and I would submit that it's pain pushing you around, right? Like it's right, just right. bullying you <laughs> until you decide absolutely yeah. not Right. Yeah. Like yeah. Les yeah. Brown talks about sometimes you got to tell the negative self-talk in your head. Sometimes you just got to yell at it. You got to say, shut up. Yes. <laughs> like, quiet down. I'm not listening to you because I'm making another choice. Right. right. I'm yeah. making another choice. I'm choosing peace. I'm choosing harmony. I'm choosing joy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it's such an, in, incredible thing or and it's such an interesting thing that you took your healing journey to write your book now did you write your book based on the things that were coming up for you in therapy mm. so kind of was it like a journal a journal journey or you just it was just coming and you just wrote it <laughs> the beautiful thing I'm going to answer a, a, a bigger question that you didn't ask, but I'm, no, that's okay. so I'm going to, I'm going to share it. So <laughs> the beautiful thing in the journey, when um, I decided that I was courageous enough 
to mm-hmm. take on writing this book, I had aligned myself with a university, Georgetown University professor, Professor Custer um, created and designed a course for his students at Georgetown University so that they would at the end of a semester actually have a rough draft manuscript, right? So they started, it was an entire, um, it was an entire class. And so he then expanded it and it just became this, I mean, just such an incredible program. And essentially through this structure um, of, you know, almost as if you are, you know, in school, um, he, well, let me back up. He opened it up to not only Georgetown University students, but also he opened it up to professionals like myself or other creatives. And and that's where I had an opportunity based off of a friend of mine who had written a book with him. And I was like, wow, like, could I do that? Because mm. legit, even though I had this secret goal of becoming a New York Times um, bestselling author, what I learned Um, from Professor Custer is that literally only 2% of people who say that they're going to write a book actually write a book. And (laughs) that seems like so astounding to me because there's a kajillion books out in the world, right? That can't be true, but that's a hundred percent true. And Mm. so if I thought people who said that they were going to write a book, because I didn't say I was going to write a book. I just said (laughs) I wanted to be on the New York Times bestselling. That's right. I I didn't say I wanted to actually (laughs) write a book. So with people who say they're going to write a book, you know, don't even 98% of them don't complete. What about the people who actually, you know, like me, who don't even say that, right? Like what chance do I have? And it turns out that in a structured program that you do have an opportunity and there's some accountability with that. And so I say that to say that he, his program was also interlinked with a hybrid publishing company. So there's Mm. traditional publishing um, where you write a book or you have a great idea and a publishing company actually buys your idea idea and or your manuscript Mm -hmm. they own the rights and then they say thank you very much and here's some cash and you go on about your merry way or you can do independent um publishing which you do all things yourself and you print it you do all the stuff and you sell it out of your truck just kidding you sell it on amazon (laughs) um both you can do both And there is what's emerging is an hybrid publishing. So you've got a publisher that you then pay. And for that, um, for that payment, you receive a service. And so Professor Custer's first part was, listen, you got, you know, essentially 20 weeks to write 25,000 words. And then with this rough draft, you're going to essentially apply to the publishing company that he's teamed up with. And if you get what they call green lit, means yes, we will publish your book. Um, We will put our name on your book as the publisher. You pay us and we will team you up with, you know, editors and graphic artists and all the things. Right. And I thought that that was a super dope, you know, concept 
because yeah. at that point, like I felt like I could win that way. Like it was a recipe for success. And so from the very beginning, you're teamed up with, with um, an editor with the title of developing editor. And so mm -hmm. this person for me, his name was Mike. So Mike and I met every single week and mm -hmm. I would get assignments. So it was, you know, write 500 words. It was, you know, write a chapter, like, you know, write a story, like whatever the thing was. Right. And, and then we would sort of figure out outline, like it wasn't all decided. I didn't have the, um, um, you know, the, the structure for it initially, but what began as sort of like, let's just throw some words on a page and then let's see what emerges from there. Then mm -hmm. sort of like the more important stories, because I always knew mm -hmm. before I even met with Professor Custer, I knew the title of my book mm -hmm. um, would be Raised as a Lie. I knew that I wanted, you know, that just intuitively came to me. Um, I call them whispers from God. And yeah. because that, title was super provocative what i knew that this what i wanted the stories to do then was to support and tell a story about how it was that this little brown girl lived her entire childhood and didn't find out until she was 18 you know right. um her true heritage how did yeah. that happen and so i wanted those stories to 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 support that and with the help of the developing editor mike and i you know, really partnered to make sure that we were telling a good story. Yeah. And then at the end of that 20 weeks, when I didn't think that I could even write 25,000 like, words, <laughs> I laughed. Like, I was like, how am I going to write that? I ended up writing 43,000 for my <laughs> rough draft manuscript. And I was like, what? Wow. How dope is that? And yeah. Then, you get teamed up with a um, revision editor and that revision editor holds your hand and same thing for the next 20 weeks, you mm -hmm. work with them in revising. Yeah. And because at the beginning, it's just a rough draft, like it's yeah. crap. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and they promise you, like there's a vision that they're holding, like, don't worry. Yes, we wouldn't, yes. we will never let you publish a crap book. Like we're going to help you. Right. You have to do all the work because you own a hundred percent of the rights. They mm -hmm. will give you suggestions, but nobody does the writing for you. You right, do right. your own right. They will say, Hey, you know, you might want to look at this and, and, you know, some other options might be like, talk more about this. Tell me how you were feeling in that moment, those sorts of things. And yeah. um, in that the end result turns out to be, you know, this really great, um, you know, just sort of accumulation of a beautiful work that you can be proud of. And that's how I feel. I feel very proud of the work that we were able to create. Yeah. Wow. And you know, the, the, the timeline, I mean, you're talking about 20 weeks, 20 weeks. And so that's 40 weeks. And then, you know, it's less than a year. Yeah. Right? I started and writing the very first week of February in we're in 2022. So 2020, um, 2021. And then I was holding in my hand, 
the my what I call my fifth child. I have three children. My practice is my fourth. And then um, I have this brand new baby called my book. I was holding that in my hand for an unboxing ceremony that we did, and but celebration, not ceremony. So we did this big celebration when the books got delivered. And, you know, we had all the things and the decorations and cake. And so like, it was such a big deal for us. We celebrated here in my practice. And I was holding that in my hand also the very first week of February. So it yeah. was exactly to the week, um, 12 months that we, wow. I, from beginning to end, like how incredible is that? Cause we all know people that it takes years. Years, to write yes, books. years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe part of that taking years is trying to gear up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's trying to gear up to doing it and to actually getting it out there and to actually, okay, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna put it out there, you know. Yeah. So yours was, was so essentially what you're saying is that it's not impossible to write a book in a year, to write a book and have it published in a year. It's not impossible. The thing, not only is it not impossible. The possibility factor increases tenfold when you have a great supportive team. And if it was not for Professor Custer and the creative, uh, the Creator Institute, which is yeah. the name of his um, his foundation company, I don't know. Yeah. Forgive <laughs> me if you ever listen to this, <laughs> Professor Custer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you have an incredible structure and a system and support network of professionals, then the likelihood increases so much so that you can, th the only choice is success, yeah. right? Like yeah. with the right, you know, support, I mean, gosh, what can't we do? And yes. if they can take somebody like me <laughs> and turn me into an author. Awesome. My God. Yeah. Like you, I absolutely, I highly, highly recommend anybody who's thinking about um, that is to, to absolutely reach out to the Creator Institute because they are churning out new authors every yeah. single year now. Well, we'll have to definitely link them in for anybody who's looking that. for yeah. it. Absolutely. So you are now a published author and a successful business owner. And that is, I think that that's just fantastic. I love it. I love your story. I can't wait to read your book because <laughs> it's like you said, it's very provocative. You know, you want to get into it and see what, how does that happen? Right. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just, I just love it. I just love it all so much. Yeah, it's nice to be here to finally get into the space to be able to talk about it and talk about it from a place of, you know, of healing. And yes. this is the one of the things, um, one of the last things that I say and talk about in my book, that I am a work in progress. Yes. We are always, always. evolving. And one of the things, and this was the mirror talk, right? Like a whole conversation in the mirror to the right of me <laughs> saying, listen, because I thought literally as recent as last Friday in therapy, <laughs> 
Ernest, who is my therapist, and I <laughs> had this whole conversation where I was like, I don't understand why am I back here? Mm. Meaning in that particular emotional space. I was yeah. like, I, I've, I'm, I've, I've done the work. I'm, I'm good. And he yeah. was like, we are always evolving. He was yeah. like, we're always looking for a deeper, greater version of ourselves. Of ourselves and in yeah. that evolution, you're going to come up against parts of yourself that you recognize need deeper levels of healing. And yeah. you're going to give yourself grace and you're going to forgive yourself and be kind to yourself yes. because I have the you know, the, the, the shooting on yourself disease, right? I should be here. <laughs> I should, I should be yes. there. I should do this. Why shouldn't I have done that? Right? Like yeah, yeah. I, I have it bad. And, and so he said, you're going to give yourself a tremendous amount of grace. And I ended up last Friday, like we spent almost two hours together. It was supposed yeah. to be an hour, but I require lots. <laughs> And he said things to me that I heard differently. Mm. I, I know, I know that your audience will resonate with that. There are things Absolutely. that we hear time and time and time again. And then somebody says it in just the right way in the right moment in yes. your life. And you hear, hear it, it different, right? Yes. The, what did the kids say now? That just hit different. It right? just hit different. That's it right. It just hit different. And so last Friday, I, no exaggerating, I had four life epiphany moments where I was like, whoa. <laughs> and when it all came down to these things, these emotional um, episodes that I was having, <laughs> arguments in my head and I will argue out loud fully answers all the like <laughs> we get loud it's loud in here <laughs> and what it all came down to um and I learned about myself on Friday was that it's all me I was yeah. projecting some things and yeah. it truly was me yeah. and I thought holy cow but here's the beautiful thing about that is when you recognize that it's you, that you have you, the, power the power to then make changes. I'm, I'm yep. not relying on, I'm not saying, oh, it's him. And now I got to wait for him, yep. whoever him is, right? Like, yeah. No, it's you, baby girl. It's yep. you. Yep. So let's get back at it. Just keep working at it. Recognize that you still are healing and put one foot in front of the other, give yourself a great big, huge hug. Yeah. Go get a Starbucks if you need to. Yeah. Whatever it takes. Vice what of choice. <laughs> whatever it takes. Absolutely. Yes, yes, we do. We have to give ourselves grace and we do. We butt up against things all the time that we think have were gone. You know, we think they, they passed and then all of a sudden you're like, what? It's one of the reasons why, why I do these conversations. Uh, I think to my, you know, I think to myself, well, someone else said that the other week and I don't care because your voice may be the voice that resonates yep. with someone who's listening to it now. So, uh, and so therefore 
we can say the same things over and over and over again, but we just don't know which voice is going to resonate with which person. So it's okay that the, the message keeps going through because when it does hit, that's the right person to and the right time to hear that message, then yay, you know, we're doing it. We're doing it right. I couldn't agree more. And I think that oftentimes when we think that we have imposter syndrome, right? Like we don't want to step out and, you know, lend our voice into the masses of what we believe or, you know, already been said and done. And, you know, everybody's already doing it. You feel a little bit like a fraud. But here's the thing. Our gifts are our blessings for the world. The world has nothing for us we have everything for the world. It is our job to bring forth our blessings. Yeah. Les Brown says the most, the richest place on the planet are the graveyards because Mm. that's where all the dreams died. Die. Right. But if you give birth to the blessings and your gifts that you have been, that have been bestowed upon you that are for others, then your tribe is then waiting for you to do the thing, to say the thing, to, to write the poem, to sing the song, right. to open the business, to birth the child, whatever yeah. the thing is, it's ready to come through you in only the way that you can. You can and do so it. I think that it is a facade and, you know, sort of this, uh, idea that is designed to keep people down is imposter syndrome there is no imposter syndrome that, that's just that's wrong that's inaccurate and we have mistitled that like go out into the world and add your voice because add, yep. we are waiting yes your people are waiting yeah. <laughs> you need to go find your people <laughs> yeah, absolutely I'm waiting. Oh. I need some more healing. I know, I know, right? It could be me, it could be you. We don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Naima. It has been such a pleasure. But before I can let you go, I have to ask you the final question. Yes, and that ma'am. is, what is your favorite dish? On the entire planet. Uh-oh. I may have been born to my Italian mother. but I will tell you I was Ethiopian in a former life my favorite favorite food on the planet is Ethiopian food and I don't want one of the dish I want the entire vegetarian (laughs) platter I'll bring the lentils the greens, the potatoes and cabbage. I need the spicy lentils. I need the kikaleche. Please bring me the angera. I need all of it in the platter in front of me. Man, you ain't never lied. That is some good food. That's some good eating. <laughs> oh, oh my, my gosh. goodness. <laughs> yes. I, that like, is I, I feel a little saliva. Like you ready? You ready? <laughs> Like, I can taste it. I saw it so clearly. I can taste it. Oh, my goodness. That is some good eating for real, for real. Yes. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. I appreciate the time that you've taken. And I look forward to sharing this with everyone. Thank you. What an honor to be here and have this whole conversation with you. Thank you for having me. 
Hey, did you enjoy that episode? If so, please leave a review. It would mean the world, but only if it's a good one and you really did enjoy it. In which case, it would be awesome if you help support my work over at patreon.com backslash Cedrola Maruska. And finally, before you go, don't forget diversitydish.com. I'd love to work with you. See you soon.